0: This week, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and having a conversation with Paul Iscoff, founder of Fervor, which connects locally sourced native food with marquee eating experiences in some of the most remote and unique locations across Western Australia. Paul told me how he started his chefing journey by taking a job in a restaurant in Busselton just to support his surfing and how that led him on a journey around the world to some of the most prestigious restaurants in the world before coming back to Western Australia to start further. Paul provides a fascinating insight into how he selects the food and the locations for the further events, as well as the scale of the logistics and the thinking that goes on behind these incredible events and how they connected to the land and the traditional owners of those lands. What strikes me is how Paul brings his experience of working in these cultures of excellence and focus from the different kitchens from around the world he's worked in to create and deliver these amazing gastronomic experiences that set on the beautiful and varied landscape here in Western Australia. So enjoy, Paul. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Connecting locally sourced native produce with marquee events in some of the most unique locations across Western Australia is the focus of today's conversation with Paul Iscoff, founder and owner of Fervor. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Paul, you grew up in Western Australia um, one of the questions I always ask all of my guests because it's WA Real is um, tell me about what it meant to you to grow up in Western Australia. How has that shaped you? Are you a proud Western Aussie?
1: Yes, certainly. I, yeah. I love Western Australia. I uh, grew up in, in Perth in, in the city but from a very young age, uh, mum and dad would bring us down to the, the south and the great southern for holidays. So I'm, you know, I'm a city kid, but I'd prefer to be out in the country and down this way.
0: Yeah, we're down here at your house in Bosselton here. Yeah. So yeah, so what are some of your fondest memories of um, being in WA, is it outdoors and things like that? Yeah, certainly, I mean, we
1: had, you know, some great family friends who lived further south than us. And we'd come down for weekends, holidays, and spend a lot of time at the beach. So, you know, for me, whether it's down on the coast or out in the bush, it just used to, you know, make me happy. I'd used to run around a lot and from a young age started surfing as well. So, yeah, Yeah. we spent a lot of time on the coast.
0: Where does the name Escoff come from?
1: So... A lot of people think it's Russian, but it's actually from uh, Denmark. Right. So, it's just... There's a place called Iskol, which is just north of uh, the German border in in Denmark. And, uh, I mean, you look at it and it says... If you pronounce it how it's spelled, Iskov. But um, we, we say Isko and then when I was in Denmark they um some of the local guys were like, Oh, Iskol and it's an actual place. Right. So came from the Vikings apparently. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Which I thought was pretty
0: cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um so obviously there's um um a big focus on food, preparing food, cooking, which is, you know, been your career. Where does that come from in Paul's story?
1: So I didn't really start cooking until I was about 19 or 20. Right. Even before that, I didn't cook much at home. So I would tell people that, you know, I was at 19 years old and I still couldn't cook rice. Right. Um, I, the reason I got into cooking was at the time I'd uh, finished school, I'd done um, a year at TAFE, so engineering production. And that was a cert three, so I did a year and went into an apprenticeship down in Yellinger. We sort of ran out of some work, and I ended up living uh, on a farm uh, at the shearing shed, and spent some time doing that. And you know, the people that I was living with were fantastic. They were always trying to support me and help mm. me out. And they came home one day and said, "Look, there's a job uh, down here in Dunsborough." Uh, you get to work from 3 o'clock in the afternoon till midnight, so you can go surfing all day long. And I went, wow, this sounds great. And they're like, it's in a restaurant. I was like, okay, that that sounds fantastic. wasn't really interested in the cooking. I was just interested in the surfing side right. of things. So I started an apprenticeship in, you know, cooking. And that's, that's sort of where it came from.
0: Right, so there was no early role models of cooking or food experiences that made you go, oh, this is what I want to do.
1: No, not really. It was, I sort of just fell into it. Fell into it by accident. And, you know, I I did um, a few months in Dunsborough, but I, you know, had been spending a lot of time uh, down on the south coast in Albany for many years. So I just decided, look, I'm going to move to Albany and continue the apprenticeship and worked at a, a great place, but it was very... I guess, basic food, um, done really well. And same thing, just got to surf all day and cook at night time.
0: Right. Yeah. Did you start to really resonate with it or so, enjoy
1: it? Yeah. So I think that, you know, I loved going to work. I loved the people I was working with and I enjoyed the challenge of it, but I wasn't, passionate about the food or in love with the food or super interested. That probably came four or five years later. Mm. And I, over that time, I sort of worked in a few different restaurants and each one I'd, you know, it'd go to a better restaurant and, you know, learn new things. And then it must have been, it would have been 25 or something, 24, 25 where I went, you know, I was working at Restaurant Amuse in, in Perth. And that's when I went, oh, hang on a second. This is really interesting. It's very different. Hmm. And that's what was where it? I fell what, in. Lovely. What was it
0: that really captured your interest and in imagination?
1: Well, I think the I went in for a trial. Um, they'd only been open for a few months and I went in for a trial just before Christmas. And there was this one dish. It was um, roasted watermelon like char, on a char grill, um, prawns. And popcorn, and the popcorn had like chorizo and, and parsley, and it was this really interesting dish, um, really beautiful. And at that point, I was like, I want to work here, and you know, everything just seems so interesting. So f- within a few months after I started, I was, I just went, this is incredible, like, I just want to learn as much as I can. And, right, and is
0: that what? took you forward on your journey to some of the world's most prestigious restaurants.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, before that I was working, you know, maybe eight or nine hours a day, went in there and we we're all doing huge hours, but it was just going past so quickly. And I was just excited to get to work every mm. day and I'd get home from work and I'd do research and read books and, you know, see what else is out there. And from there, it sort of just carried on.
0: Mm. Now, as I said, you, you've, worked in a n- number of the most prestigious restaurants in the world. Um, one of the things that I personally always find interesting about chefs in some of these kitchens is the pursuit of excellence and the extremely high standards of which they hold themselves accountable to. What's that like being in a, in, in one of those kitchens?
1: It can be pretty high stress, (laughs) you could say, Uh, there's some chefs out there that that are total assholes and that can really, you know, make life difficult for people and almost make it unenjoyable. I've Mm. been really lucky and worked with great, great chefs, great people. But yeah, you get to a point where, you know, it's almost like OCD sets in and everything needs to be perfect. And every plate that goes out needs to be absolutely spot on. Like these people coming to eat, the guests, you know, they're, they're paying good money, they want that experience and you want to make sure that, you know, everybody gets the, mm. you know, the perfect dish coming out. So it is, you know, quite stressful at times, mm. but... Did you enjoy the stress? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of the places that I went to, there wasn't all that much stress. You're working with, um, a group of people that are just that they have the same mindset. They're really passionate. Mm. They work hard. And when you get that team and everyone's bouncing off each other, it's, it's more about just getting stuff done, like, you know, working hard and quick and fast, and you don't have that stress so much. It's, it's, it's obviously there, but it just helps you get through the day and put out a really beautiful, um, plate of food.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you learn a lot about yourself during that part?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, especially as you, um, work your way through all the stages of a kitchen starting, you know, um, maybe doing talk us through those stages
0: just for somebody who doesn't know.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you, you walk into a kitchen and there's all these different, um, sections Uh, depending on how big the restaurant is but you might have a a cold larder area where there's um, entrees served from or or salads and stuff and then the hot pass where you're doing all the cooking, uh, pastry where you're making breads and desserts and then you know maybe the pass where you're calling the dockets and plating the food and stuff like that so I think that it's really important to be able to learn all aspects of the kitchen um, and then eventually actually learn all aspects of how to run a business, which I only started learning, you know, six or seven years ago. Yes. Once you learn that, you realize how hard your um, bosses actually work. And you, at the time when you're in the kitchen, you're questioning, oh, why are they in the office so much? Um, It's not until you actually running your own business, Mm. doing all that, Um, work behind the scenes that you go, wow. Okay. That's cooking's the easy part. Getting organized, doing service. That's the easy part, the fun part. (coughs) So yeah, I think it's important to, you know, have an understanding of the whole, the whole business, not just each section in a kitchen and running it, but the overall, um, it makes you appreciate uh, spending time in the kitchen and doing the cooking even more yeah
0: did you appreciate your time in the kitchen while you were in one of in some of these world-class restaurants
1: yeah certainly I mean uh in... did you ever sit
0: there I think shit look where I'm at
1: <laughs> yeah so and this
0: started with just oh I'll go down here and work <laughs> yeah so in in
1: 2012 um, I did a round the world trip for 12 months and I, I finished up at a muse and, just decided I'm gonna go stage, which is um, working for free or work experience at restaurants. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'd i done a bit of staging in Australia, um, on the East Coast at some of the restaurants there. So restaurants like um, Mark, Bacasse, uh Key, Tetsuya. So they had good names. So when I applied for stages overseas, Um, they saw the places that I've been before and that sort of got my foot in the door. Mm. And I was really lucky to get into some incredible restaurants and, yeah, just, you know, just learned so much. Mm. And each of them sort of, I could take away certain lessons that I've, you know, sort of picked up from each, each restaurant and each country that they were in.
0: Yeah,
1: And, you know, I would... Wouldn't change it for the world. Like I came back extremely broke, and um, you know, came back to nothing. But the experience was, you know, I'll, I'll never get a chance to do that again. I don't
0: mm. think. So where did the idea for further and for somebody who doesn't know, can you just talk us through what it what it is? Yeah. So when I came back from that
1: around the world trip, um, I was. You know, really inspired, and I wanted to focus on native Australian ingredients. And I thought, well, let's do a pop-up and and give it a go, and we'll see how we like it. We'll see how the guests um, mm. respond to it. And we gave it a crack, and we did our first dinner Margaret River down in Margaret River permaculture in an outdoor barn. And we were very unorganized. It was, you know, it was really tough. But we had, I think it was about 26 people. And a lot of them were the chefs from down here and industry people and friends. And it just went really well. And people responded really well to it. And mm. we, you know, even though the pack down took a ridiculous amount of time, hours and into the next day, we just enjoyed it so much. So we decided to try a few more pop-ups and we do them in different locations. So it continued on from there and by doing a pop-up in a different region it allows us to see a different location, mm. meet different people and use different ingredients. So we were constantly learning. We still are, we're constantly learning every place we go to. Mm. So instead of having a permanent restaurant, um By doing these pop-ups, we just get to travel, meet people, and learn as we
0: go. Where did the where did the idea for it though come? You know, just I'm going to focus on the native ingredients. Is it was that influenced from like your time at Noma, or
1: I guess yeah, I guess a bit. We we were using native ingredients, um, well, for quite a few years before I did my trip, but only small amounts, Mm. maybe some lemon myrtle here and wattle seed there, and it, it probably was while I was traveling, um, Noma and, and definitely Dom in Brazil, just using ingredients from their region, a lot of ingredients that I hadn't heard of before and a lot of people hadn't seen. So over that year, I was thinking, well, how many ingredients do we have back at home? So this whole year, I was just studying as much as I could and, and trying to find out what we have in our backyard here in Australia. There wasn't heaps of information, but... There's not, is there? No.
0: Um, You know, because the default is to go to Coles and Woolies and buy the fresh fridge that we all know and love. Yeah. But it's very European and on offer. Exactly. And, you know, that's
1: all great as well. But, you know, for me, it was... I was curious why we're not using more of these ingredients in our own backyard and why do people in Europe eat more kangaroo than we do here in Australia? Like it, It's such a delicious meat, it's so healthy for us, it's so sustainable, it's um, free range, we don't have to give it water, we don't have to give it food, it's good for the land. Mm. Um, so I was asking myself all these questions and it would have been while we we're over there um, that I talked with my sister. And said, you know, when we get back, we're doing a pop-up. We're, you know, we're yeah. going to give it a go. Got and all these
0: ideas, I've got all this knowledge and yeah. experience.
1: I had pages and books written down with all, as much information as I could. And then I just started putting um, all these dishes together and ideas. And so, yeah, we came back very inspired.
0: Yeah. And so you had your first pop-up, then you started doing a few more. Yep. And then where does it go from there?
1: Yeah. So I think it was our third pop up we did, um, in Muck and Boudin. Um, so that's for, you know, a lot of people who don't know, it's about 350 kilometers, um, east, northeast of Perth out mm. in the Wheatbelt.
0: How did you choose that place?
1: Well, we've, we've got some friends from there right. <laughs> and they came to our second dinner. Um, and they said, ah, Come out to Muckumbudin. We'll do an event out there, and um, it was after a few beers at the end of the night, and we're like, "Yeah, sure." Um, just thinking, no, that's not going to happen because at that point in time, we had an old Triton Ute that had done four hundred thousand kilometres. Right. No trailers. Yeah. We borrowed plates, trestle tables, seating, lighting. We borrowed everything. Anyway, we did that event in Muckumbudin. 70 kilometers out of town so this is the first place we did um a dinner with no power and it was out on a rock and there's only 400 people in muck and Boudin. and we did 40 people at this dinner we cut it off because we didn't have enough plates to do it yeah, yeah. 10% of the population 10% of the population <laughs> yeah and it, it was the community that made it happen like we borrowed trestle tables from the muck and Boudin golf club um a farmer brought out a trailer load of hay bales that were used for seating people don't add firewood generators all that kind of stuff and i think that was a big turning point where we went this is incredible the community is um so grateful and we just went this is what we're sticking with we're going to do this mm. so from there we just slowly started you know getting equipment just from the line shed down the road here. So all secondhand pots and plates and things yeah. like that all mismatched. So it was a nightmare packing the youth. was like <laughs> Tetris, but it was just so much fun and we were learning so much. And you know, that's sort of where it really took off.
0: And now, now five years on, what sort of events are you doing and running now?
1: Very similar events. Yeah. We still do, you know, 30 to 40 people, and might do a a gin and tonic with old youngs, as we were talking about before, Um, six snacks and anywhere between eight and 12 courses, and then some petty fours. And, you know, I think probably 50% of our events these days are either private events or, you know, um, for a company. So, you know, this weekend we're doing 100 people and they're only doing four courses. Yeah. But, yeah, majority of the events are still outdoors um, under the stars, uh, whether it's on the beach or Salt Lake or in the, the treetops down at Valley of the Giants or something like that. Yeah. Um, or on an island, you know. We've taken people from Albany, put them in a helicopter and flown them over to Breaksea Island to do an event over there. So, yeah, just just quite similar to what we Mm. started doing but um you know just trying to refine everything and push the boundaries Mm. a bit more
0: what's the um what's the sort of impact that you want to have on your customers and who who typically you know aside from the private events who typically comes
1: it's such a wide range of people so anyone from that we've had you know kids who are six or seven years old, come with their parents and try all the food and enjoy it. Mm. All the way up to people in their, you know, seventies, eighties. Um, so whether it's, um, half the people are farmers, um, out in Muck and Boudin, local people and the other half have actually come from Perth or Margaret river or driven so that they can experience a dinner out there and those ingredients. So. It's, yeah, it's very different all the time. We're always meeting really interesting people. Um, it's not just foodies who come out, it's people from the communities that want to, you know, get involved and, you mm. know, try something different, I guess. So yeah, it's a, it's a very, very different community. But um, I guess what we're trying to pass on is we spend a lot of time with the traditional owners. So. Mm when i first did research there wasn't much online there wasn't many books and the best way to learn was to spend time on country do cultural tours um, sit around the fire and listen to stories so the stories that we've been um, given permission to share and the information that we've been given permission to share we want to pass that on to the the people who come to the dinners and we might be sitting down right here and we can look you know, across to the Kwandong tree that's only, Mm. you know, 50 meters away and talk about uh, how incredibly healthy that Kwandong is. Or we might um, mention the Gabi and Jokakadu plum um, that's collected by Bruno and Marion up in the Dampier Peninsula and that it has the highest vitamin C content of any tested fruit in the world, you know, and this is in our backyard. Yeah. we have all these foods that blow superfoods out of the water, like Australian foods are some of the healthiest in the world. Mm. So I guess we're trying to, you know, tell a story about what we do, Um, let people know that we're, you know, supporting um, Aboriginal-run farms and communities uh, as well as the people in the bush food industry who have been there for a long time, who who have the same mindset as us, and that, you know, we should be eating more of these foods at home. Mm. It's, a lot of them are really sustainable, um, extremely healthy and really, really delicious. So, we just want people to experience that firsthand. Um, because there's just so many of those foods out there that we don't even know about. And
0: how does someone... I mean, I spoke to Dale in a previous podcast. How does somebody get out there and actually know this uh, know this stuff? Because you've almost had to go on this odyssey to go and find these foods and, and learn about them. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's obviously your focus and you've made it what you do. How does the Everyday Joe... Find out. I
1: I think uh, the best way to go about it is to do a cultural tour in your region. Or if you're going up north on holidays in the middle of the year, um, mm. stop in Caratah and spend some time with Clinton Walker. Or when you're in Broome, um, look up Neville Polina and go and spend some time out on his country. And you know you'll catch the biggest barra of of your life, and and listen to the stories and. Um, you know, eat some incredible food. But, um, you know, if you look on the web and you look at the Waitok website, which is basically promoting all the um, Aboriginal tourism and companies, you can just jump on there and have a look at what's closest to you or where you're going and book in a cultural tour because that's where you're going to learn so much. Mm. And we keep going back and seeing our friends each time. So we've hung out with Clinton a whole heap of, every year that we've gone up over the last, yeah. I think four or five years. And every single time we see something new, we learn something new. Um, so, you know, there's just so much to learn. And I think, you know, we should be learning more in schools as well. Mm. Um, mm. I I feel that, and it's probably different for a lot of di- other schools. I feel like, um, when I went to school, I didn't, um, I wasn't taught a whole heap about, you know, um, Aboriginal culture. I think th- times are changing and it's getting a lot better now, but mm. you know, things like, uh, I'm not sure if you've read, um, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, no. absolutely incredible book. It's a really easy read, but things like that, um, that could be, you know, a a book that we all read in in primary school or high school you know just sort of teaching us more about aboriginal culture more about native australian foods and Mm. how good they are for us and how they've been um i guess preserved and cared for over thousands of years i think it's more than just some of the foods it's these life lessons Mm. that have been around for thousands and thousands of years Mm. that we can apply to, you know, our everyday life.
0: What are some of the life lessons that you've sort of gleaned from this?
1: Well, you know, uh, first settlers have been here for a few hundred years and we've managed to, you know, clear a lot of land and do a lot of mining and really destroy a lot of the country for thousands of years before that it was maintained and looked after and, and pristine and i think we really need to look back at that and go well if we continue going how we're going at the moment we're you know we're going to be struggling like we need clean water we we need food and you know uh, aboriginal people have done it for tens of thousands of years. And I think there's a really good lesson just looking at how they manage the land. Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an in-depth conversation and qu- quite a lot to learn. And, you know, we're still learning a lot about it, but, um, you know, I think there's yeah a lot to be learned from, from them.
0: So as you go on these cultural tours and, and Get exposed to the different food. Is your brain continually ticking over? Oh, I could stick this in this and put that with this and put that together with that.
1: Yeah. I think that there's a lot of the time it's quite difficult to get large quantities of these ingredients. Yeah. That'll change over um, the coming years. But for us, it's it works really well because we're on the road and traveling, um, mm. especially with our north tour where we do 15,000 kilometers in three months we will go out and collect a bunch of ingredients and we have to think about putting that into a dish the next day because we have a more or less a menu written but if we go out and the day before and get a bunch of um bush coconuts and then um you know mud crab and conch berries and boab and things like that we want to incorporate that into the menu. So, yeah, we're always straight thinking, away, oh, yeah. what can we do? Um, so, And that's the exciting thing about it. Like, we have to think on our feet and apply that to the menu straight away. So, I guess, in a traditional sense, in a restaurant, that dish might be on for three months, and you might get to refine it over that time and do the little tweaks, whereas we put it on the menu once, and then that next weekend it might not be you know, it might be a total different dish. We might not have any boab left. Yeah. So although there's ups and downsides, like we don't get to refine that dish, but we get to move on to something else and, and try yeah. something different. So we're constantly learning, yeah. learning, learning.
0: Yeah. Rather than that sort of perfecting, maintaining stuff which is constantly Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um how how do you go and pick your locations? Because Western Australia is a big old place. It's huge. Um,
1: it's, <laughs> it's huge. It's huge. We spend a lot of time on the road. So I think with our North tour, we've got um, you know, quite a few destinations that we go to. So and when we're... do you
0: typically do your North tour? So do you split the year into a North tour and a Southern tour? or how yeah. It generally
1: look? Well, the north tour <clears> goes for three months, and then the rest of the year we sort of are in certain regions um, over, yeah, the summer periods, I guess you could say, um, and it might be, yeah, a lot spent down in the southwest or great southern, and then a lot of time spent in the wheat belt, but... The North Tour sort of starts from mid-April and goes for about three months, and we do 15,000 kilometres all the way up into mm. the Northern Territory.
0: Um, you pick spots before you go?
1: Yeah, so it starts off normally with the Karajini experience. Um, we'll go to uh, Karatha, Broome, Fitzroy Crossing, uh, Kununurra. We might go out to the Bungles um, and then Kakadu and then work our way back down. And then, you know, some places like Karatha we've done maybe five, been there five times. So five different locations in Karatha, or four or five. And same with Muck and Boudin, we've done that seven or eight times so that we're trying to find a different location each, each time, each time. which can be challenging because, you know, the weather's not always on our side. I was going to ask you about this in a minute. <laughs> yeah. So number one, the location has to be, well, doesn't have to be, but most of the time we'd like to have a beautiful location that, you know, represents the ingredients in that area and showcases the beauty of Western Australia. But we also need to have a plan B and, you know, be able to use the shearing shed down the road or the town hall in case there's, you know, a flood clump coming or, you know, some, cr- some crazy weather, which happens more often than you'd think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess picking location is about, you know, having people, uh, in that area who might say, Hey, th- these, these three spots are great and yeah. we'll go look at them or, you know, each year when we're in Caratha, we might try and, you know, find a different spot for the following, for the following year. Yeah. yeah.
0: Hmm. And, and then there's got to be the logistical part of this as well, because you're taking everything. Mm. Is that right? Not just the tables and the chairs, uh, and the knives and the forks and the plates, but also something to cook on. How does that all come together?
1: It's yeah, it's, it's definitely <laughs> come a long way since we started. It's more refined. More now. refined. <laughs> yes. Uh, we don't have that old Triton ute anymore. Mm. Uh, We sort of went from the Triton ute and then got a trailer and then the ute died so we got a full drive and then that old trailer fell apart so we got another trailer and then the Hilux died so we've upgraded to a truck now Um, Mm. and you know it definitely makes life so much easier and to do these pop-ups you have to be extremely organized because if you're 50k's out of town and you forget the butter, or you leave the kangaroo back in the prep kitchen, you're not going back to get it. No, like you're you're set up. Yeah, it's, so it's off the menu. <laughs> yeah, uh, so you have to be really organised. And if you forget pots and pans, then you know you're going to be struggling to cook. So having the truck means that everything has its place, and you know it's designed to. I don't know have a big, big load on it. It's quite heavy. Um, yeah. but yeah, it's just, you just have to be really organized. Um, and because we're doing, you know, at least one event each weekend, we're constantly looking, you know, six months to a year in advance because as I mentioned before, it's all the logistics that are the hard work that's the cooking is the fun bit. The yeah. easy bit. Um, but yeah, just going out there and Finding the site, making sure that we can get um, a toilet there if it if there's no toilets or port-a-loo out there. Um, working out how we're going to get the guests there. Talking to the shire. Uh, filling out or designing a 20-page event management plan and risk management and fire management. Because it's going
0: to say health and safety as well.
1: Yep. Um, then, <clears throat> you know, and, and that's... that takes a lot of time. Yeah. Um, then promoting the event, making sure we've got enough people coming mm. to the event to cover our costs.
0: How do you promote um, typically?
1: Basically just social media and word yeah. of mouth. Um, we have the newsletter that goes out, uh, but yeah, mainly social media. So yeah, like we, we're constantly trying to do new posters and have promotional material and you know, when you only have a week in between dinners, you really need to, to think quite far ahead. Mm. So there's so much that goes into it before we even start prepping or, or thinking about the, you know, 10 courses or it'd be up to 20, 20 different, um, I guess samples or bites of food really.
0: Mm. Well, I've been some of your more painful learning lessons.
1: <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I mean, and you know, some, some places we might like, for instance, this weekend, we're, we're able to do nearly a hundred people. We're in the new, um, premier meal in Katanning. So we have power, we have a kitchen, we can do a hundred people. Yeah. Um, almost and, sounds too easy now. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's almost like we're cheating a little bit. Um, mm. but that's when we step up the game and, you know, we have a projector on the wall with, um, you know, videos and photos and incorporate, um. Uh, matched wines um and have the wine makers there and some of the producers talking about the food but you can't do that out in in the bush you can't um serve 10 different wines like mm-hmm. we can only fit a certain amount of wine glasses in and if that road's really corrugated you know we might lose some bottles of wine or things might smash so you, we tailor each dinner and the menus to the location as well it's a really windy location. We need to be mindful that if we've got um, some crispy saltbush on top of the kangaroo, that that might blow off. Mm. So this weekend, that's not going to be on there. We're going to change change that. Right. Yeah.
0: So many things. I think, like I said, for What have been some of your more painful learning lessons along the journey? So,
1: yeah, the rain. The rain. The rain. <laughs> the rain. <laughs> we, you know. We've made a few calls uh, at dinners to where the weather report has said, you know, 2% chance of rain and we've, you know, evaluated it and talked to people and everyone's like, nah, it's not going to rain and we've set up a dinner and it started sprinkling halfway through and you can't stop the dinner, pack up and go set it up in town hall. Like it takes us hours and hours to set up. So these days we try and go the safe option. If it looks like there's, you know, a bit of rain coming, then we prefer to have people in in the shearing shed where it's gonna be, you know, safe and people are gonna be comfortable and mm. they're not gonna be drenched. So just having, yeah, a plan B and also mm. even a plan C some of the times. Um, a lot of, we just have backup upon backup whether it be the location or the food, or if somebody turns up, um, who didn't, who forgot to mention that they might be a a vegetarian or something like that. We have to be ready to change 10 courses. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just being, being really prepared.
0: Yeah. Has there uh, been one dinner in particular where it's, you've been like, wow, how did we pull that off?
1: Um, we did an event in the pinnacles in pinnacle desert and that was incredible like it was a really special dinner it was a small group of people and i remember early on a beautiful afternoon um and we were having snacks we had a raw emu dish we saw this emu like pretty much run through like really close to all the guests it was just fantastic but it got really cold that night so we had these um gas heaters, um, but it was maybe three or four degrees. So keeping food warm, like when the main course, the kangaroo came out, comes out of the pan hot and you're slicing and it goes cold so quickly. So we just really had to be on top of things. But for that event, it we had the um, the car probably two or 300 meters away from where we were doing the event because we right in between the pinnacles. So we had to unload everything and take it over in between the pinnacles to set it up and the the deal was and this is like most of our dinners um when we leave that there was nothing left so at the end of the dinner we had to sweep the sand so that there was no footprints or anything left
0: Mm.
1: and walking back and forth from the car to um, clear the plates and then take the dishes over to the car it just adds minutes upon minutes on each course um, over 10 courses yeah so it was you know at that point in time i thought well you know every single minute adds up over over the length of a dinner and you know if we need to walk an extra two minutes to the car back and forth 10 times that you know that really stretches the night out so that was a huge event and it was fantastic and we swept that sand, and we went back the next day, and it was like no one had been there. Like the majority of our events, but yeah, it just really makes you think about when you get to a location, how you set up the the table, how you set up the pass, how mm. you set up the kitchen, the dishwashing section, and how it all flows and and how it works.
0: Sounds phenomenal. You know, it's it's one thing to go to a kitchen and see everybody working in harmony and this and the other when you see some of those kitchens where you can peer in in a restaurant but to actually create that in the middle of nowhere yeah it's it's quite different and you know
1: having a kitchen there if a vegetarian turns up and says oh i can't eat the menu you're like great that's fine like we've got a whole fridge full of food here we'll sort that out for you but in the bush it's definitely a lot different (laughs) you know you've got a um, a couple of Wacos or Engels and you, yeah. it's packed to the brim with the prep for 10 courses. You don't have all this extra room and space. So there's definitely the, you know, there's up and downsides of cooking out in, in nature, that's yeah. for
0: sure. You seem quite a calm character. You're always this calm when you're in the thick of it.
1: Uh, I'd, I'd like to think so because... <laughs> <laughs> but no, not all the time. Um, we We do... Like I said, we're, we're very prepared and we do a lot of the work beforehand. And there's a lot of behind the scenes thinking. So, uh, you know, I might constantly be thinking about how we're setting up the truck when we get to a location. And if we're going to put it on this certain angle, it's going to give us a better wind block and the dinner will flow better like this. Yeah. Um, just Just little things like that and how we get the guests from mm. point A to B and making sure that you know if we've if we've taken the team do we have enough you know swags because we might be camping out after the dinner and where we're going to where we're going to camp and you know just all that kind of thing that's all done beforehand so yeah as we're getting to the location maybe the day before um that if we've got the chance to spend a day out on country and go foraging with traditional owners that's where we're you know just sort of connecting and being really relaxed, and then as it gets to the day of the dinner it's it's just about setting up and it's not it's not always that easy sometimes we you know um, there's always hurdles, yeah but that's Do you get what, stressed yeah 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 definitely <laughs> you like, strike is yeah. a stress yeah. character when um you know. There's always hurdles I mean if you yeah. you know blow a tire or something like that so you end up getting to a place an hour or two hours late <coughs> so you have to leave a bit of a, mm. a window there so that for anything that could happen there's definitely stressful times so oh yeah definitely
0: and do the um, are the guests do the guests come to your event and still carry that sort of oh what can we how can I put it that same expectation that they would have in a restaurant when they come to your vessel, Or do they just calm down a bit more and are a little bit more understanding if, say, one dish is five minutes later than you'd anticipate?
1: I think they're a bit more understanding. Yeah. Um, we get a bit more leeway because, because we're plating 40 dishes all at once yeah. rather than in a restaurant plating four dishes with heat lamps, um, a light, no wind in a restaurant you can actually see the dish because we're you know we've got lights out there in the bush but yeah it's a lot harder to see we might be walking on uneven ground or rocks um we're using trestle tables not a pass we don't have the heat lamps so we design those dishes to the location where we're at and we keep it simple um Number one, because we're not in the kitchen, but number two, also just to highlight those ingredients. But I think people were, you know, that understand where we are and that we're cooking outside and that we're, you know, we're cooking on a, four, a camping yeah. four burner, you know. Um, majority of the time, uh, 90% of the time, we don't have an oven with us. So it's just all in pans or if we're lucky enough to have the campfire, we'll cook over that. So the food is very different to, I guess, something that you'd be getting in a fine dining restaurant. Mm. If we had a fine dining restaurant and we are doing 40 people... Yeah, you expectations would be up here yeah. and
0: mechanical distribution. Yeah. yeah,
1: so very different type of cooking um, compared to, you know, six or seven, eight years ago when mm-hmm. I was in fine dining restaurants.
0: Where do you want to take further over the next three to five years?
1: Well you know we we want to continue to do the pop-ups um we'll probably instead of doing 60 a year we might do 8 or 10 um there's a possibility of a a permanent location um in the in the years to
0: come or next year possibly but would that be like a permanent field or an actual (laughs) (laughs) or an actual building it might be an actual building right okay um
1: (laughs) But yeah, I think we'll, we'll always continue with further, but you know, uh,
0: I guess. Does it have a shelf life for you? Uh,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, like physically it is really tough because unloading or yeah. And then repacking the truck at the end of the night is that it, it's hard work. Like there's heavy boxes, there's tables, there's chairs, there's. Um, it's a lot of strain on your body, a lot of bending, um, and you know we're constantly fixing things because you you do that in kitchens, things break. Mm. But you know every time we go on North Tour, it's like okay, we're taking a truck, we're taking a four wheel drive. You know, new tyres, new batteries, full service, fix all the broken tables, fix you know, hmm. the, the shelves, all that kind of thing. So when you look at it um, and ask the question, is it viable? It, it's not. The only reason we can do this is from the support of our family and friends. We right. if, if we had to hire a commercial kitchen, um, if we had to pay um, <coughs> full-time staff, um, we couldn't do it. Yeah. Not even close so we're really lucky to you know have this kitchen here and you know pay minimal rent on it which is which is great and then with our staff and our team we've got an incredible team and we have people in different regions around western Australia who'll come and get involved um, right. and and help out and you know donate time and just, you know, that's, that's what fervor is sort of based mm. on. It sounds our like conference. more of a movement than a business. It is. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, you know, we, it, it's our passion. Um, and we, I'd like to think we'll be doing it for a long time, but you have to look at that side of things if it, if it's viable or not. So there are different projects that, that we are working on next year. Um, we've, we finished a book, so that'll be released in a month or two. Um, and then there's yeah potential for a, uh, a permanent place next year, and possibly some um, documentaries or TV sort of things. So yeah, next year we'll be focusing on um, a few other projects hmm.
0: as well. What is, what have you learnt about yourself through this journey?
1: Um, <sighs> I, could, I don't know what it'd be like to work for me or with me um, <laughs> because I'm pretty, a lot of the time I think I'm right about everything right. and that I have a better idea about how something should be set up or, and I know that's not the case. Um,
0: is it typical, uh, this, this is an interesting question, so is um, a typical event, are you the focus point of it?
1: Well, I'd like to think the whole team is, so... But a team
0: has to have a focal point or somebody you know, in charge or something. Yeah. So that will be you then.
1: Yeah, I guess i yeah. will be ca- calling the shots a little bit more. Yeah. But the team is inc- incredible and it might yeah. just be, um, you know, the crew that we use when we're down in Albany. They jump on all the dishes and menus different this time, but they just jump in. They, they know how to get it done and you just show them one thing and they can... It flows through. It's the same with the front house. Um, you know, Steph has to adapt to a new restaurant every weekend and you know, uh, we're out in the bush, but the front door might be coming from a different direction and all that Mm. kind of thing. So everybody's very, very good at, um, managing how we set up differently each weekend. Yeah. But back to you. Back to me, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) you don't get off the hook.
0: So you often think you're always right. What have you learned about yourself on this journey?
1: I guess I need to be more patient and understanding um, because everything changes all the time. I sort of, I have everything going through my head every single week. So I have the whole event planned out. And sometimes uh, I think that maybe everybody else should know that as well and what's happening. So I need to be like, come on, like, how do you not know this? It's like, well, we've never done it like this before. It's all in my head. So, yeah, I think I need to be a bit more patient with people. Um, I'm very set in my ways of, you know, if you take something, put it back exactly where you found it. Uh, which right. normally happens in most kitchens. Mm. But with what we do, it's extremely difficult. You have, you know, different um, people coming to help all the time. Um, the layout of the truck changes um, as we evolve and as we refine things. Mm. So, you know, four months ago, that spatula was probably in a different drawer or something like that. Yeah.
0: So, I don't know. You. Is it still taking those what we were talking about earlier that sort of excellence of execution that you've been exposed to yeah and then bring it into what you're doing because yeah. you know what excellent looks like
1: yeah so i can be pretty critical of certain <laughs> things like that so i don't know i th- i think that um i'd like to think that um I'm okay to to work with but i can also see that i might be a bit of a pain sometimes yeah, <laughs> yeah. so well, patience it- i think
0: Yeah. What have been some of the unexpected benefits that Ferb has brought into your life?
1: Oh, the, yeah, the travel, um, the people that we've met and just what we've been able to learn, you Mm. know, um, just sitting around a campfire and listening to stories or, you know, listening to song Things that we never would have experienced um, without fervor. Mm. So, And those are the things that, you know, that we really look forward to each time. And, and probably one of the main reasons we continue to do what we do is to keep learning, to keep connecting with our friends, meeting new people and learning about their country or their stories. So mm. we're extremely lucky, I think.
0: Where's, um Where's been, it's probably one of the most difficult questions I could ask you, but where's been one of um, the best dishes that's been served to you?
1: Oh, I just in general,
0: in your time, yeah, in my time. Um, We've got, wow, that was next level.
1: We were in New York at the end of last year and we had this, um, dessert at Cosme, um, And it was a corn husk kind of dessert, like a meringue and um, a curd and stuff. Super simple, but just absolutely delicious. And, you know, we were there with uh, five or six friends and we'd just been eating tacos and stuff like that. And then the dessert came out and it blew me away. Um, We don't get out much these days. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that would probably go back... So that restaurant there, um, the sister restaurant of Pujol or Pujol in Mexico City. So I stayed there for a while in 2012 and when I finished, I sat down, they, um, gave me a, a dinner with matched drinks and stuff. So as an overall experience, that dinner was definitely one that I'll never forget. It's the best meal I've ever had, um, in a restaurant. Mm. And it was 14 courses matched with with drinks. And not just your wine, but there was beers, tequilas, um, hot right. chocolates, harachas, things like that. Right. And I love Mexican food. It's probably my favourite food. Um, but just having a 14 courses based on traditional Mexican food done at a very high level was mind-blowing. Um, I guess the other thing that... I always look back to is um, uh, the camp oven. So we've got a great friend in Albany, Cole Sippy, and he, you know, he gets all the family and friends around and cooks for, you know, anywhere between eight and 40 people all out of camp ovens. So he might have 15 going, 20 going at once. So dampers in in a few of them, Um, he'll have veg going in the others, he'll have lamb going in some, all that kind of stuff. And that's what I enjoy. Like it's just outside in Albany on this beautiful granite rock where he does all his cooking and you just sit down, eat this beautiful, some of the best damper I've ever had and eat this delicious lamb from his farm. Like, you know, Mm. just, just, you know, you can look over and they've got all the produce there. And it's all cooked in camp ovens and that's, yeah, that's some of the the best food I've I've had, Mm. I think.
0: If you could have your pick of a a dinner out in any restaurant around the world, where would you go?
1: Uh, At this point in time, probably Central in Lima, Peru. Uh, Looks like they're doing some really, really interesting stuff. Um, Plus I love South America. Yeah. So
0: yeah and if you could do a further event anywhere you wanted where would you is there a location where you think i'd really love to do one there i don't know how it's going to come together but i'd love to do one there
1: i haven't thought too much about that i mean we've always wanted to do one at uluru yeah i'd love to do that i think that'd be incredible i really think that we'd need to go out and spend quite a bit of time first and spend time on country and learn about the area and meet people and then, you know, possibly the following year come back. Um, and also Arnhem Land, which, mm. you know, um, we're hoping to get up there, but I think up in that region for sure. So yeah, Uluru, Arnhem Land, mm. definitely.
0: What are you grateful for? <laughs>
1: um, oh, I've got a lot to be grateful for, um, <laughs> grateful that I'm healthy. I'm grateful for my family and friends, um, cause they're, you know, they're a big part of my life, uh, and they're basically what make fervor tick, you know, um, although, since we started further that you get to spend less and less time with your family and friends but they're always the ones you can pick up the phone and say hey let's go get a beer and you haven't hung out with them for a couple of years it's still it's like you know yeah. it's just exactly the same as like a few days ago so i'm grateful for that and i'm also you know really grateful for all the people that have been involved in fervor, like just Being able to go out on country and listen to stories and, you know, learn about Aboriginal culture, about Australian history, because that's a big part of why we're, we're still doing this.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. If you could go back and give Paul a piece of advice as he was about to start that, start that job, which could mean he could go surfing. And, and do a bit of work in the kitchen right at the start and give him one piece of advice from where you are now. Mm. What would that be?
1: Uh, don't be a chef. <laughs> be a chef. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm totally, I'm totally joking. Um, <laughs> because cooking has actually, you know, <clears throat> led me to be here and I'm I'm so grateful for mm. that. Uh, I probably would have said, you know, start start cooking earlier or, you know, at a younger age, sort of look into cooking and, um, because it's more than just cooking in the kitchen. It's learning about where your vegetables come from and how it grows mm. and being sustainable and looking after country.
0: So. The whole connectedness of it.
1: Yeah. Because it's changed the way I think about everything, you know? Um,
0: how do you see it all now? Well,
1: you know, those, those days before I started cooking, or even the first few years when I started cooking, um, I'd, I'd been running down the beach for years and years and years, and I'm walking past all this food. And yeah, it's just opened my eyes up to what's around us and how, you know, before everybody was living in these beautiful big houses and able to go to the supermarket and get whatever food we want whenever we want thinking back hundreds of years ago of how it all worked and you know how it all you know seasonality and looking after country and um people used to work really hard for their food as well you know Mm. not that we don't these days but it was just a different different time
0: worked harder in a different way
1: (laughs) definitely yeah so yeah i think cooking is definitely um changed the way we think about a, a lot of things
0: yeah and if there was one last nugget of wisdom from you that you'd like to give the listeners yeah. yeah paul's little nugget of wisdom of what he's learned what would that be
1: um i guess take your time do your research um and and listen um listen to the stories uh, go out and do cultural tours. Um, if you want to learn about, um, you know, Aboriginal culture and Australian native ingredients, um, that's where you're going to really learn. There's more and more books coming out, but spending time with the traditional owners is is where you'll learn. And it's also about, you know, uh, the feeling on the inside as well and, and connecting. I think that's pretty important.
0: Yeah. Superb. If somebody wants to come to one of your events, where do they find you?
1: Uh, they can f- look on the website. Um, yep. So Fervor or yep. uh and uh, we'll just put all our, our dinner, upcoming dinners on the website. Super. they can join us wherever they like.
0: Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Uh, thank you very um, much. It's been fascinating to hear how you've, brought all these different components together and just to understand the complexity of what you actually do. You know, as if running a restaurant isn't difficult enough, you just move the restaurant around everywhere and put it outside. <laughs> so I have absolute admiration for what you put together and it's been fascinating to hear the journey behind it. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> it been great. There you go.